Welcome back. This is episode 91 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And although I suppose it's been a little bit of delay and I feel like we say that a lot, but uh, we are back and we do have another episode and this episode is all about what are we what are we terming this sort of vipers and definitely vipers not quite not not just not just venoms because we have some other stuff but well i think vipers is the sort of central thread and then we've got some more fluorescent stuff because everyone loves fluorescent stuff and then some stuff about viper venoms which is pretty cool um but both with some nice behavioral insights alongside them yes definitely definitely yeah well we talked a little bit about um fluorescence in episode 89 we were talking about animals which glow under uv light so they they take on uv light and they convert it into wavelengths of light which are um different and have less energy but then they reflect them and they sort of produce this sort of glowing effect and we had the paper by uh Protzel and shirts and co about pachydactylus rangii the really beautiful little nimib sand gecko which has that fluorescence on its flanks and around its eyes and we talked about how it might be used to recognize other lizards at long distance in the desert but but we yeah. were also saying yeah. you know a lot of this fluorescent stuff it doesn't necessarily have the um sort of there's 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 ways that you can suggest that it's sort of ecologically useful or the function it has but we're never you know there was there was some sort of suggestion you know we're not completely sure why this gecko glows like this it could just be an artifact of its color otherwise and it although it seems like there's probably a likely reason but in this one of the papers we've got today there's like a pretty obvious smoking gun as to why the snakes might have this fluorescent tail so that would be cool to get into but before yep. all yep. that, like you said, it's been a while since we did this. It hasn't been that long since an episode came out because I took forever to edit the last one, but it has been a like it has been quite <laughs> a gap since we actually sat down and recorded one. And well, you know, that's because life's gotten immeasurably more hectic. At least it was certainly very hectic for me in June. Um and you know, you've been moving around the, the earth as well, mm-hmm. which is uh yeah, yeah, made made life. Earth and place and flats and all sorts. Exactly. Yeah. You, everything's been very exciting. But yeah, I mean Basically, I reckon I'll just give a little brief update on my PhD as it goes, because, yeah, after two and a half years of trials and tribulation, we actually finally put some radio transmitters in snakes recently, which has been extremely exciting. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah, we've um, we've implanted six Escalapian snakes with radio transmitters, um, four males, two females. And yeah, since pretty much the beginning of June, I've been tracking them down every day and uh yeah learning a lot about their habits um we did have six we're now down to five uh well at least one of the snakes has been spending a suspiciously large amount of time in the nest of a buzzard which is not normal snake behavior Uh, (laughs) yeah yes i mean unless it loves buzzard eggs yeah i mean looking at the uh looking at the nest from below (laughs) certainly the chicks looked pretty healthy they didn't look like they were going to likely be predated by any snakes and yeah i think uh, a couple of well there was like there was like sort of a there was like a three or four day period where i was optimistic like hey these snakes 
you know, maybe they are just really arboreal. This guy just likes it up there. And then the more I looked, <laughs> and then eventually I spotted yeah, the buzzard oh, nest, oh, and dear. it is unmistakable that the signal's coming from the buzzard nest. Um, so yeah, we're hoping that we might be able to recover that transmitter. Um, once the buzzards have definitely fledged, going to try and, uh, well, a tree surgeon has very kindly offered to go up there and actually try and retrieve it, which would be cool. But it would be nice to actually... That would be awesome to get it back. It would be, yeah, because yeah, we could yeah. use it again if it's all right, if it's not in any sort of bad condition. How how long how long will it have been? You reckon? Like, like get it get it refurbed and and you know top up the battery and put it back in, or enough to put it you know clean it off and. Uh... Well, the battery for those ones is like twenty weeks, and it was only implanted in the snake for about two before the snake decided to take a permanent vacation to the buzzard nest. So yeah. I think if I can get it back within sort of. A, you know, within a couple of weeks, it will certainly be worth reimplanting in another snake and doing the rest of the entire active season for that individual. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we live in hope, but I mean, it's a cool observation anyway. And I mean, massively cool observation. Yeah, it situates them in the food. I mean, there you, there you have a, a native, a native predator taking a uh, introduced species. It's a good bit of a potential Escalapian snake PR, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's it's been awesome, and I mean, this tracking the snakes. You know, there was this there was this couple of weeks um, at the beginning where the males, in particular, were just zipping around all over the place. You know, like hundreds hundreds of meters m- moved per day, um, which has slowed down significantly now. Um, and I think that's because of the fact that the breeding season's more or less finished. Um, but obviously, you know, there's some uncertainty about whether or not the early sort of part of the tracking period could be sort of a bit stressful for the snakes because obviously they've been taken into captivity <laughs> undergone a uh, transmitter insertion so whether or not they're behaving completely normally straight off the back of that is kind of remains to be seen but isis well and potentially you've got the, the counter argument of if they've just undergone surgery and they're sort of healing and stuff perhaps they're less likely to move mm. and it, it's difficult to sort of second guess how a snake's going to react to something along those lines especially when they're in a wild environment yeah. right so it's not it's not a foregone conclusion either way. Yeah. I think it'll be very telling if we manage to um continue tracking to the end of the active period because the very beginning was kind of um there was these long moves going on where I'm pretty sure they were mate searching and I actually saw one of my snakes mating, mm-hmm. which is like extremely good evidence for that. Um, which was really neat. I was just I knew it was close and I was walking down this road and uh there's like a stone wall and at the top of the stone wall I just saw these like two little tails intertwined and I was like, Oh, Oh my god, um, which is pretty sweet. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, a lot of this like initial movement was associated with a departure from where we initially caught them. And I think, yeah, you could say you know oh, it looks like it's uh, some kind of sort of bizarre move. But actually, I think it's more like they were moving from their sort of overwintering area to their summer sort of places yeah. where they are spending their actual time. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see at the end of the season if they go back from whence they came and find where to hibernate so yeah but it's been fascinating you know like you know these snakes are pretty wily um they've really slowed down a lot now but you know they're going into buildings quite a lot which is something we expected to see um but is coming yeah. true yeah. so that's really exciting so now do you think that's for for warmth and shelter or sort of cool and shelter or i think it's any any sort of ideas like like prey wise or something along those lines? So based on because we've got the temperature sensitive transmitters and snakes are certainly yeah. not cool when they're inside buildings. You know, if they spend a day in the building, they're like you know getting getting up there in temperature. So 
Yeah, from sort of my initial thoughts, it would seem to me as though they've pretty much got a situation where buildings are shelter and heat. And I mean, it's entirely mm. feasible that there's also food up there. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, the crawl spaces of people's homes, I think, lend themselves to certain prey like mice and things snack and a warm place to digest yeah, it potentially. exactly yeah so yeah it could be that they've got everything they need up there but um yeah time time will tell i think but it's been fascinating and yeah it's going really really well so it's been extremely gratifying and we got some more radio transmitters arriving hopefully in the next sort of 10 days and then we'll be implanting uh some more snakes provided we can find them because capture rates have gone down a little bit with it heating up a bit but um yeah. yeah, very optimistic. But yeah, it's going really well. Um, and actually, I need a name for one of my male snakes. There's one that's still being known as 137, which isn't very becoming for such a beast. So <laughs> if anyone's got any ideas for a male snake name, throw them our way. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, the best one, I'll actually name the snake that for sure. Excellent. There you go. What an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other ones are called Freddy. Uh, and then someone found out that we had one called Freddy. So the one nearby is called Frida. Um, uh, who else have we got? Jeff. Um, Nessie. And, oh, and Cobain. But Cobain died young. Oh. Oh. Rest in peace. Oh, but dear. yeah, no, it's been awesome. It's been Rest awesome. So excited Lord. about it. And uh, yeah, I've got like an awesome team of volunteers um, this year. So yeah, everything's going swimmingly well. Awesome. That's great to hear that there's some some field work actually actually occurring <laughs> finally after delays and and fight backs and permits and permissions yeah and exactly something it's it's always an uphill something, battle something but perseverance something something yeah. yeah yeah but yeah it's ace so yeah i'll continue to provide updates on the uh, escalapian snakes and what they've been getting up to brilliant now look forward yeah. to it hey so uh yeah should we get into this First paper, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about fluorescence again for a little while at least. Uh, and this paper is by Mendike and Lawrence, 2021. Glow and behold. Very clever. Biofluorescence. Is it Lawrence or is it Paul? Oh. No, I th is it not Paul Lawrence? I, in the paper itself, it says Lawrence Paul. Nice catch. Oh, yeah. Lawrence Paul. You're quite right. Okie doke. There well, we this go. is the problem when you're... <laughs> you know when you're trying to interpret papers because I mean, yeah the herpetological review yeah. and referencing software leaves something to be desired strictly do not mix <laughs> yeah so no, that's my mistake no, nice no, catch don't. yeah so Mendike Mendike and Lawrence sorry and Mendike and um, Mendike and Paul 2021 or Paul well Paul and Mendike is it Paul right? and Mendike I think so I mean his name appears first <laughs> Okay, okay. This one's hard. <laughs> this is the hardest part. Paul and Mendike, 2021. Glow and behold, biofluorescence and new insights on the tales of pit vipers and other snakes, published in Herpetological Review this year. It's fresh. It is, and wasn't the easiest to obtain. No, yeah. But tricky, tricky. But we got there. And uh, yeah, reading this paper, it had quite humble beginnings. So one of the authors, Paul Lawrence, uh, examined some individuals of Tremerosurus hagenai in a private collection using a UV torch. Just one of those casual ones where you're just swipe, you know, shining a UV torch on some animals and <laughs> noticed their tails had a strong bright blue fluorescence. And you can see in the pictures, Tremerosurus hagenai is um, 
uh, one of these just pure green with a red tail green pit vipers from Southeast Asia. I mean, it's a pretty classic pit viper, isn't it? Yeah. From from that perspective, it's it's exactly what you'd expect. Exactly. It's about as green as they come. And yeah, following on from this, uh, obviously spotted some UV reflectance uh, in the tail. Very exciting. And this led to the examination of 28 pit viper species, which, you know, very thorough. 15 species... Um, 15 species beyond pit vipers were also looked at. Um, these were from Boidae, Colubridae, Alapidae, Lamprophidae, all the other Idae's. And uh, yeah, not just pit vipers, also some more traditional vipers without the pits from Vapirinae, the subfamily, were also photographed. And yeah, they were looking to see whether or not the snakes had this trait where they were shining fluorescence under a UV light. Um, and we were really looking at the tails in this instance because it was the tails that initially uh, flagged up and um, it was the tails which were glowing in a lot of these cases, actually. Um, and I think it's fair to say that yeah. this was kind of an exploratory exercise. You know, there's not any of the kind of deep technical, you know, they haven't run, they haven't done multispectral photography and looked at how prey the potential prey of these animals perceive these tails. They're literally just shining a light on them and deciding whether or not they show any fluorescence to the human eye and reporting on those that do, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's sort of steps beyond this is determining how, how things match up, the exact wavelengths, like you say, matching up with what the prey can see and things along those lines, if it is indeed a prey thing and not a predator thing. But um, those are all sort of steps down the line. You need to know what animals even to bother looking at in that such detail before you take those steps. And I think this is a wonderful paper for, you know, getting getting a pretty wide sample done and and really highlighting some interesting interesting cases. Yeah, definitely. And um they do something I like, which is put loads and loads of pictures of snakes in the paper. That is something it it's it's rare. I mean I mean, it was only the last episode. I've, I've had reviewers ask us to remove uh, pictures of studies at study yeah, animals from because it was only from papers. Before. Only the last episode where I was bemoaning the fact that there was no images of snakes in the uh, paper, and also the, the it was the paper about the um, nematode worms, and they didn't have any pictures of nematode worms. I was devastated personally. But you told me, you know, hey, listen, you don't always get pictures of the animals because some reviewers don't like it. Well. Couldn't disagree with that more strongly, but you know, there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, but some, sometimes you like, all right, we'll take the loss on that battle so we could win a slightly different yeah. one. Yeah, it's all a give and take with reviews. It's, I mean, and in life at, at large. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, what have we got? We got some pictures of snakes, and just looking at the pictures here, some of these pit vipers have got a very, very very fluorescent tail under UV light. So what are these species? We've got some uh, Protobothrus cornutus, another cool pit viper species, some Anchistrodon piscivorus here, you know, very glowy mm-hmm. tails. Um, and then, you know, some sort of less compelling ones. There's images of um, a Mangshan viper, you know, that's only got a really tiny little bit at the end. Similarly, um, yeah, some of the other Protobothrop species have just got a tiny little tiny little tippy tip just a tiny scale tip which is glowing which um you know is in contrast to the really really obvious photos of pit vipers which have got these bright 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 colored tails under uv light and yeah let's talk about why why the sort of what the theory is behind this because we've talked about caudal luring in the past haven't we 
before you jump into that, one cool thing with the Acoustodon you mentioned is the fluorescent only seemed to appear in the neonates, juveniles, and subadults, and not in the adults. Yeah, it fades with age, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they haven't been able to do this with all the species because they didn't have, you know, didn't have individuals of all different ages. But it is nice to highlight that we do have this onto genetic change, this change from as as things age, which might be tied into as you're sort of going going on to different lifestyles at these different stages, corresponding to different changes too. So there's there's an added layer of of depth to this this glowing rather than just a species glows or not. You know, there is variation within the species, which is kind of neat. I mean... And uh, might point to more interesting things 100%. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we talk in the past, you know, um, I think we have a bit of a fixation with caudal luring. I don't know about you. I just think it's one of the coolest things that snakes do. Um, This idea that they're using their tail as a lure to to catch prey. And, you know, and in the case of puff adders, their tongue, which is even more nuts. But yeah, just the fact that the... It seems as though, certainly in um, Achistrodon, Perseverus, right, that it changes with age. And, I mean, that speaks to some of the other papers we've read, which, you know, generally speaking, when you find papers on curdle luring, there's quite often juvenile snakes implicated rather than adult snakes. And that's not to say that adult snakes don't yeah. do it at all. And, you know, there's really compelling images in here of adult snakes with fluorescent tails that we'll get onto. Um, but, yeah, the fact that there's that, like you say, that change from adult from juvenile up to adult with this uh, effect apparently fading and you know it would just we just need we just need hard evidence that the the caudal luring potentially uh is less was less well used by adult snakes and that would kind of suggest that yeah this does have a role in that in that in that behavior um well i mean you say it like like caudal luring could be dropping off but equally it could be uh the prey items they're going for are less uh sensitive to uv or something along those lines there's there's a pressure relaxation Mm. you know it could be on the prey side as well as the uh the predator side Mm, very true very true um so yeah the other the other kind of obviously they are pit vipers but the big group of snakes which are looked at in this paper are rattlesnakes and yeah, rattles, as it turn, turns out, uh, seem to fluoresce under UV light extremely brilliantly, um, which is quite a surprise to me. It seems nuts that we've never seen images like this before. Um, but yeah, if you shine a, a UV light on a rattle, geez, they glow almost white. So extremely uh, compelling photography that they've got here. And um, yeah, they're talking about I mean, obviously, you know, we associate the rattle being used as a defensive warning, which it's... Yeah, you don't think of it as, as a caudal no, lure. You su- Even if there are suggestions that the sort of caudal luring and warning and the tail waggling and things might have some sort of commonality with how they developed at some stage. Yeah. Um, well, this is it, isn't it? The rattle... You know, you think you think rattle, you think pure warning, pure defensive uh, strategy. I one hundred percent did, yeah. Like no lie, I would not have given it a second thought if someone had said to me they're using the rattles for caudal luring. I'd be like, they was silly, so noisy. But yeah, I mean, why not? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that like it's caudal luring in a traditional sense, which is that really um, captivating little wormy style wiggle that the snakes do, and obviously that varies from species yeah, to species. Can- sort of flick and the, the irregular movement that makes it look uh, like an invertebrate. I mean, the ultimate example is uh, the Pseudocerastes arachnoides, the Iranian spider tail that we've talked about 
many times because it is just the most outlandishly extreme example of caudal luring, but it really does do a wonderful way of a wonderful job of demonstrating how convincing the movements snakes can do with the tails are when when they want to make them look like something tasty. Oh yeah, those those images are crazy. And yeah, like they're talking about the the pit by um you know the rattlesnake rattle here. And, you know, we're talking about a whole bunch of different species. But one thing they also point towards is the fact that rattlesnakes will often rest with their rattle near their head when they're just chilling around. And, yeah, I mean, certainly when you look at these images in the UV spectrum, that thing looks extremely brightly colored. And whether or not, you know, that could equally be a distraction as well. So they put it somewhere that it can be seen by their predators and maybe their predators go to peck that rather than peck it. But, yeah, it definitely looks like a compelling sort of attractive thing when they have it near their head. And they also do some comparisons to, um, well sort of grass really isn't it um yeah yeah, yeah. looking at yeah. sort of it is seed seed uh what's the proper t- there's a proper term for it isn't it yeah it's like a they, they say mm. what do you call one of those well imagine a imagine imagine <laughs> a, a singular wheat um one wheat yeah, well, you know, on a blade of grass yeah. at the top, you've got all the seeds collected <laughs> together in a nice little packet. What do you call I that? I can't even figure the term for that. The packet. You know what I'm talking about. The wheat packet on top of the yeah. stick. <laughs> uh, is it a head a of head, wheat? A sheaf? Is a sheaf of wheat something different? A spike. A spike. Is that the... Ear or head? Really? Is that the technical term? Well, then you need a new one of those. You need yes. a new one of those. Hey, so yeah, they've got this... The rattle does look just like the end of a piece of grass, really. And actually, similarly, it would seem as though uh, those heads of the grasses where the seeds are, are also going to glow if you shine a UV light on them. So this is either a camouflage thing or it could be that their small mammalian prey are looking for these things and finding them because they look like delicious seeds so that is an added layer of complexity to this story in the rattlesnakes rattle which yeah i mean you know we're blowing the case of the rattlesnake rattle wide open here it's not potentially not just for defense but it's also serving a role in uh in luring their prey and obviously this remains to be seen we probably need a few thunderdomes to take place to be sure of this um but yeah really really exciting i don't yeah, I mean, how how would you devise an experiment to uh, to to test that out? Like, uh, I guess you'd have have. You, I mean, you wouldn't even need to thunderdome it, right? If you had a uh, the remains of a rattlesnake and just a tail, and you have a head of wheat, and you do a pretty simple, uh, I guess, choice choice experiment for your little mammal. And what you would expect is that the mammal would be as equally likely to go to the head of wheat or the rattle. Yeah, that would be decent evidence that they're not uh, able to distinguish between the two. Yep. And if you had your choice experiment, it turned out that the mammal went to wheat every single time. Then you're like, all right, the rattle's clearly not a good enough um, mimic, I suppose. And, And that would be sort of debunked in that way. I, you'd have to deal with all sorts of other controls, like the the scent and things like that. But uh, you wouldn't necessarily have to put your little mammal at risk with a live, ready to eat rattlesnake. That's good. That's good. You know. You know. We don't have to do the full blown Thunderdome. You can do this sort of. I mean, I suppose the, the added thing is like, is 
this is this is with the assumption that the mammal can't detect the rattlesnake because obviously having a rattlesnake there might have some influence but we know that they have sort of chemical ways of masking themselves and you know they they're very visually camouflaged as well yeah but i think if if you could get just that base level where the choice experiment that would be a nice starting point mm, yeah i'll tell you what i found interesting too about this paper was i always thought for these images you know you're seeing these very cool fluorescent well you see these caudal tail regions exhibiting fluorescence under uv light and you think wow you know but obviously when you're shining a uv torch directly onto something to me in my mind i would have thought well that's a lot of uv radiation are they actually going to be getting pounded by that much that's going to be that obvious in nature but according to this paper Mm -hmm. um fluorescence actually may end up being better visualized in low light conditions like heavily forested shady places or between dusk and dawn because the overall uh, proportion of shorter wavelength light present at those times including uv radiation is actually greater um so in low light environments uv is actually overrepresented because it penetrates down into the underneath the canopy and so it it, it could actually be the case that um, detecting these um, or this fluorescence in the tails might actually require very little um, excitation from UV sources, which is quite surprising. You know, this because you'd think, you know, a lot of these species, particularly the pit vipers, many of them are going to be living in quite a dense canopy. It's going to be forested, not exclusively, yeah. but in many yeah. cases. And so it's quite cool to hear that actually, yeah, it would work well in low light environments because I'm pretty sure a lot of the time that's what they're going to be going to be sitting in is low light environments. Yeah. And he, I mean, even the rattlesnakes living in more open environments that could be higher light, uh, one of these guys most active, um, it's not in the midday sun, is it? No. Same same with the mammals and stuff. The mammals aren't out and about midday sun looking for, for grassland food. It's going to be uh, evenings and, and nights. Crepuscular. And even then exact well and you're you're gonna you're talking about animals that are living very terrestrially and in amongst rocks and grasses and things that have, you know, some level of light blocking that you would expect that sort of mirrors the arboreal situation, but just, you know, condensed, I suppose. Yeah, 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 very much so. But yeah, so, I mean, we're talking about a whole bunch of species that they found here. I said at the beginning, didn't I? It was like, was it 28 different species here that they've discovered have these uh, glowing tails? 28. 28 oh, they, pit vipers they species. 28 pit vipers, and I think 22 of them had it. And then there was... Yeah, and then they had one, two, three boids, two alapids, a lamprophid. Uh, what's that? That's seven colubrids, I think. Yeah. In the... Um, one of the things they have pictures of is um, Langaha madagascariensis, um, mm. the Malagasy leaf-nosed snake. Leaf-nosed, yeah. Um, yeah. And they've got a picture in here of the end of the tail. Now, that to me is one of the less compelling ones. You know, you can just see there's a few scales on the end that are sort of glowing. And something I've noticed, because I check Asclepian snakes with UV torches all the time, because we use the fluorescent implant Your glowing, elastomer. Yeah, 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 your little markers. Yeah, so our yeah. marking technique requires a UV light. Sadly, I can report that they don't use, they don't have a brightly coloured caudal portion for luring, which 
But then they're colubrids and they're more likely to be active foragers, yes? Less ambush, more active, potentially less need to draw in prey and more about them seeking them out via sort of scent marks and that yeah, sort of stuff, Yeah, absolutely. Right? The tail's not... Yeah, they're not They're not ambush predators, so it would be surprising. And to be honest, um, I find the image of this um, Malagasy leaf-nosed snake... I don't know. I don't know whether or not you could say that that's definitely a uh, a sort of... Um, I mean, it's undeniable it's glowing. I'd be very surprised if it's actually got any sort of um, significance in terms of their uh, prey luring because, well, one, like you said, I think that's quite an active cruise foraging snake, at least as I understand it. I know we don't know a huge amount about them, but also um, snakes, when they get injured, often when they scar, the scars um, are, they will fluoresce under UV. I see that if there's a snake which has yeah. had like some damaged scales, they're always you can pick them out. They glow because I sometimes mistake it for a mark. So I wonder in the, in the case of that snake whether or not it's just had an injury to its tail tip and then that's healed and has resulted in some scar yeah. tissue which is shiny. I can't see the age of the non vipers reported in this paper, which is a shame because. That, that was where my mind, especially because it's right on the very tip of the tail, it could be damaged, but it could also be fresh growth, just, you know, a growing snake. And then it starts making you think about the juvenile and the young snake's tails and how they're glowing more. And then you're thinking, okay, is it a new scale thing? Is there something else going on there that isn't necessarily prey related, but is more about uh, fresh growth? Mm. Like certainly the rattlesnake, I mean, the, the base of the rattlesnake stops you know, they, they grow and then it stops, right? And then it's added on to the end without the base getting any additional keratin, yeah? They grow from the end, do they? Yeah, I'm not sure. Right, well, whichever... They grow from one end or t'other, but the point is that they... Once they're grown at one end, they they stop growing and then they add it to the base and, and carry on. Was my understanding. I might be yeah, completely... Yeah, because you can age rattlesnakes. Completely you can off. do a little bit of age guessing based on the rattle as well. Yeah, which, in that case, you think, okay, well, clearly the, the glowing isn't a fresh growth thing in that circumstance, unless they're applying something to the entire new tail. But the others, especially very tail tip stuff, and as you say, other scenarios with damaged scales also glowing, it's sort of like, mm, that's probably not one. That's probably not not connected to the ecology and might just be sort of incidental. Yeah. It's way less compelling than the... um. The snakes, which you know, kill all there, isn't it? Yeah, and especially, I mean, even I'm I'm bringing up the the vipers that the younger ones were glowing more than the older ones, but you know, like the uh, the green pit viper and stuff, that is a lot. That's a, quite a decent chunk of glowing on the end of the tail. I mean, what would you put that as? Um, do they do they say how how much of it's glowing? Do they give a measurement? No. Or do they do it by scale? Not as far as I recall. I just remember them talking about the distal tail tip. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to eyeball because it's hard to guess how big that snake is. But it appears to be in a bucket. I think a bucket's that sort of size. <laughs> I don't know. What, what would you say? Like it's a good few centimeters, isn't it? It's about yeah, like six, six, probably, seven, eight yeah. centimeters. I mean, it's about as much of the snake's tail as the length of the head, isn't it? So it's not. It's a non. Yeah. It's a. It's a non. Um, it's a quite a significant portion of the tail. And, you know, mm-hmm. these are really long-tailed species as well, so I think that sort of makes it look like it's less. But actually, yeah, it is a fair, fair old chunk of the tail for these uh, these pit vipers is actually extremely colourful under UV light. So what's your what's your opinion of uh, the uh, protobothrops 
neonate glowing tail. Tenuous, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Again, like it could just be that because that's that the end of that tail looks a bit sort of blunt as well. I don't know whether or not it's just an extreme close up, but it looks like it could have lost the end of it. I mean, it's something which you see all the time in snakes that very tip of the tail's gone for whatever reason, you know, be it a bird pecking it or yeah. Um, yeah. or just a bad shed and it constricts the blood flow and you end up with like a little nub at the end. So, yeah, I'm not so sure about the Mangshan Viper. Not sure. Don't find that one particularly compelling. But at the end of the day, it, there's still a decent percentage to have evidence, which is pretty convincing, right? Yeah, I mean, and it was 100% of snakes which are known to caudal lure in this study had uh, fluorescence in the tail, which is, you know, quite quite telling. And there were lots which didn't, you know, they have the fluorescence in the tail, but they haven't been shown to caudal lure. And, you know, that's just probably because no one's seen them caudal luring rather than them not doing it. Yeah. Well, or it's a situation where the fluorescence is, I guess, ancestral or came at a different time, different pressures, different environment, but then caudal luring is a relative... I presume that caudal luring is a relatively plastic behaviour. You know, that's something that they could turn on and off, do or not do, depending on their environment, relatively easily, right? So, whereas having the gaining fluorescence or losing fluorescence might be a little bit harder but behavior might be a little bit more flexible so i can see it now maybe maybe there's some of that too. the phylogeny of fluorescence well it's it's getting to that point right they're, they're, they're getting there studies like this go a long way to helping that along yeah they? absolutely i think it's really cool and uh like i said great pictures so yeah go and get it if you can um check out these images uh really nice really nice paper and yeah some stuff you know some cool alluring fluorescence stuff and i think we're going to keep an eye out for fluorescence based papers because i don't know about you I, I well i do know i do know you think it's cool i think it's cool too so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's let's keep yeah. an eye out for it all right so should we move on to the second paper yeah i think so all right all right So this one is by Piao, Yao, Jiang, Huang, Huang, Tang, Liu, and Qin. Do pit vipers assess their venom? Defensive tactics of Dynag Kistrodon acutus shift with changed venom reserve. Published in Toxicon in 2021. It's brand new. Yeah, this is this is quite a nice one. I like this one because it, it feels like it gets quite close to um, this idea that... People always say, okay, snakes never want to waste their venom because it's expensive. You know, it's, it's complex proteins that takes a lot of energy and effort to make. You don't want to just waste that. It takes energy, takes effort. You, know, you want to be efficient, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's some, there's some questions about whether animals are always driving for efficiency. But if we put that to one side and treat this like there is... I mean, there is a hypothesis that... Snakes optimize their venom usage. Yeah. So this paper's trying to sort of demonstrate that, or demonstrate that there is a uh, they they can make up for it in other ways. If they have used a lot of venom, what are their options? Yeah, that's the idea behind this, isn't it? And to do that, they're using these Dynag Kistrodon acutus, aka the sharp snouted pit viper, and. What's cool about these guys is that the species epithet acutus is named after the Latin word aquere equals sharp, 
or acutus, sharpened, pointed, or acumen tip, or even acus, needle. So yeah, it's something to do with the sharp. It's a sharpy, sharp, sharp, and it's to do with the uh, the snout itself being extremely pointed. And this was also known as the hundred pace viper because of its uh, venom lethality. Potency. Yeah. 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 Oh, or I suppose dosage. I don't know. Um, they're like they're like a they're a little bit like um, Malayan pit vipers with longer noses. Yeah, it really just looks like a Malayan pit. Slight yeah. change of coloration. Yeah. But, Malayan yeah. pit viper with a more dramatic pointy nose. So we're dealing with defensive bites in this scenario too, because you'd ex- predation sort of bites, um, you know, active bites, whatever you want to call them. You would expect the snake to use adequate venom to do the job. And it's not going to be in a situation where it's forced to bite something it doesn't want to or it isn't fully prepared for. I think that's that's the sort of setup. So it's purely defensive. And that also makes it an easier sort of circumstance to test too. It's got a nice added bit of context with the sort of human snake bite scenario of if animals are more or less likely to bite in different contexts or different surrounds or or whatever. So there is a bit of scope for taking this information from this study and sort of understanding what scenarios a snake might be more likely to bite in, which I also like. They don't they don't sort of talk about it too much in this paper if at all, but in the back of my mind anyway while I was reading it, I had that as a as a thing because I feel like a lot of these papers that talk about likelihood to bite is often coming from a human angle of like okay when to be careful about these snakes and i sort of i appreciate them not doing that in this one because it (laughs) i don't want everything constantly from the human perspective especially when it comes from animal behavior but that is just something to keep in the back of your mind as we're talking about these things yeah absolutely yeah the basic idea behind this was that they had different groups of these vipers and some had more venom than others, right? Um, they knew that some of these snakes yeah. had used their venom. They knew that others were in the process of replenishing their venom. And they knew that some hadn't been bothered for a while. So they should therefore have good stocks of venom ready to go in their glands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got these these three groups. One which is sort of repeatedly um, and over quite a short time frame uh, presented with a... a they, poke them with a they poke them with like a rolled up towel or something along those lines to, to 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 absorb the venom so they can get an idea that they are not just doing dry Science. bites and stuff like that. Um, and they also have a, like medical silicon for one of the behavioral trials too, so they can get an idea of how much venom's being being deposited. But basically they have one which is treated quite frequently, so it is using up its venom. It doesn't have that opportunity to um, replenish it. That's group one. Uh, group two is a sort of baseline one with enough time that it's always got enough venom. Stage three is the more interesting one, or group three, sorry, where you have a group of animals which basically uh, experience the the low venom uh, scenario where they're having to bite quite frequently, so it lowers their venom stores, but then they're given a break and this sort of recharge time, this replenishment time, and then some more trials after that to see if that replenishment, to see if you get a difference in behavior from when they have low venom to when they have high venom. So you've got low venom group, regular venom group, or high venom group, and then this transitional replenishment group. But it is it is the same snakes in that final group that have low and then and then go high. That's, that's the change in individuals. 
So they're all the same snakes, but with different trials going on. They treat the same group of snakes three times. No, no. I mean, they're three different groups of snakes. I'm just emphasizing that the replenishing venom group basically bridges the gap between those two other groups in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're sort of the intermediary group. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they do a good job of describing, you know, the way they blocked out these experiments with timing and and repeats and stuff. Um, They're measuring venom throughout, as far as I understand it. So they, they do have evidence that the low venom group is a low venom group. But even if it wasn't, I don't think that too much is undermines their findings because you're still dealing with a group of animals which is having to be defensive more intensely. Like it, it it's it's dealing with a more uh, intense disturbance regime, whatever you want to call yes. it. So even even without the venom stuff, which I don't think I think that's my only sort of hang up with this paper is I don't think anywhere they report uh the venom levels over the entirety of the trials they provide them with with summarizations of how much venom is deposited each bite but i don't think anywhere they report the amount of venom over time which i would have liked to have seen especially for the vo- low venom the low venom just group. to see it is low because of course you'd expect it high and then drop off and then sort of bottom out same with the replenishment one it would have been nice to see that drop off at the beginning and then boost back up that i don't know it would have been nice to see the amount of venom being deposited by these animals as well as the um just the behavioral mm, stuff yeah and it seems like they do have that data i'm not super sure why they didn't didn't report it completely yeah, keep your secrets yeah so um or, <laughs> or don't keep your secrets as as we'd all prefer yeah so let's talk a little bit about that you mentioned briefly there the behaviors are different between these three groups in, in what way yeah. in what yeah. way are snakes with less available venom behaving differently to those who have a comfortable amount of venom I mean the short story is um, they're, they're less likely to bite the low venom group is less likely to elicit sort of that that biting defensive behavior and more likely to uh, show sort of fleeing or basically getting out of their behaviors that's the transition. So- <laughs> Um, We've said that there without a lot of fanfare, really. I mean, snakes which have less venom available are behaving differently than snakes which have plenty available. Now, that is something which people have been telling me for years. Like, for ages and ages, mm-hmm. people have been coming up to me and saying, oh, you got to be careful of the babies because the babies don't know how to the meat of their venom. Or like, you know, all these other sort of... It's worth noting these were juvenile snakes. Right. There were 20... I think they had 20, 23 juvenile snakes. Right. Now, how old a juvenile snake is, I'm not entirely positive in this case, but they are And juveniles. the old common... Uh, oh, sorry, around two years two old. Two years old, so yeah, probably some adults. 11 males, 12 females, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. The, old, uh, the old adage is like, yeah, be careful of the baby snakes because they're little idiots. They'll just inject all their venom at once. Um, they won't think about it because they're new to life. They don't understand what they've got to do. They don't realise they have to save it. Well, I mean, we just smashed that one wide apart, at least for the case of Achistodon, Dinachistodon acutus. Yeah, I think I think that's why I'm a little bit frustrated you don't see the venom amounts reported throughout because there's no because it's hard to unpick whether it is a saving venom thing or a repeated stressor thing. Mm. I, I I mean the So we have the replenishment group, which I think is a really fascinating one, where you have this 
low percentage chance of striking, about equal to the low venom group for the trials until they get up to their break. And then the final three trials they do are after this this group has had time to replenish their venom stores and the bite rates jump right up to almost equal to the uh, normal venom group. Not quite, but they're getting up there. And that matches the sort of behavioural scores too, where there's a, a drop-off in the sort of fleeing at that time too. So there's this beautiful mirror between fleeing behaviour and bite likelihood. So just in brief, um, the story is that if they've been biting more recently, they're more inclined to flee subsequently. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that I think the way you phrased it there is what this study says with the data they present. Yeah. What is implied is that that's a function of them having less venom. Right. And I think these guys do have that data. I just don't see it fully reported. Mm. But certainly that behavioral switch is mm. there. I- and what's also neat is they had they had a third sort of thing where they were documenting warning signs too. Um you know, snakes puffing themselves up and along those lines, basically, hey, watch out, don't come near me, I'll bite you. And those didn't change. Ah. There wasn't any sort of real difference between the groups. So there was much uh, bluff and bluster between all the groups. So until the snake made that decision to flee or to bite, you couldn't tell the difference on... on you know, it was, it was very difficult to predict what the snake was that's doing. That's great. That's way, that's really telling actually, isn't it? Because, you know, they're still giving yeah. it, they're giving it all that regardless of how much or, or, or how recently they've been biting. It's only when it comes to the yeah. actual act of biting itself that they decide not to based on the fact that they have a lot recently. That makes it a very much more um, when it's, sort of compelling story, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not even that they won't bite i mean we're talking about a, a reduction in chance of biting they still had something like a 60 percent chance of biting the low venom group but it's with you know with the way they accosted the yeah. snakes but that was compared to a near 100 percent chance of biting for the full venom group and they what are we talking like 90 percent of striking for the post replenished group right so that's you know, the replenished group was sitting around like you're anywhere between 75 and 50% chance of striking when they've got low venom or when they're, you know, when they're being accosted very frequently. So the assumption is they don't have very much venom and then it jumps up to that 90% once they've had that break. Right on. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, to neatly summarize this, what have we got? They describe it here as the capability of snakes to adopt flexible defensive tactics based on varied venom reserves. And I think you've nailed it where you've said, you know, we can't say for sure that they've got the varied venom reserves, only that their most their recent behavior would suggest that they've got less venom to use. Um, but yeah, the fact that they are still yeah. blustering regardless is very telling. It's like, it's it's almost like there's that phase of their behavior happens regardless. They just do all the posturing and bluster because, you know, whatever's attacking them, yeah. there's no concept of how much venom they've got. Or, yeah. And I mean, we don't well, necessarily there's a, there's, a, there's a stage before that they didn't document too. You know, the first stage of these snakes isn't bluster. The first stage is, is crypsis yeah. and investigation. 
you know, they said, uh, I think I think it was this study where they were saying they didn't bother documenting tongue flicking as any sort of behavioral response because all the snakes did it always. So you've got this, a crypsis level, you've got a tongue flicking, work out what's going on level, then you have the bluster. Like it is important to emphasize that these snakes don't just go from zero to bluster. <laughs> but there is a, a big chunk of behavior there that is chill out. Yeah. And just let things blow over, which... People often, I feel like people often underappreciate because that's usually the time when people aren't noticing the animal anyway. Yeah, bear in mind that you are a dumb ape. Once it's, once you see the snake, the snake's failed in its efforts to hide. That's what that's what we see. Okay. We only see, yeah, we only see sort of last resort tactics, really, or at least you know the sort of three well, or four. You certainly see it down the yeah, line. Yeah, the lead yeah. up to the last yeah. resort, uh, when the last resort, of course, is biting. Yeah, but yeah, really, really exciting paper. I think similar to the one we've just read it. It's one of these ones that kind of tears it open for lots more studies investigating this much more deeply. And of course, you know, we've only got it in one obscure species of viper right now, Dinochistodon acutus. Um, it'd be cool to see this kind of, you know, because I guarantee you there's going to be a lot of variety in the way that different individual oh, species behave. So. Yeah. And of course, within species, you'll get variation. But yeah, I would imagine that there's yep. going to be some species which are going to be, you know, Perhaps, I mean, perhaps it depends as well on the particular venom that these animals have. Um, that yeah. too, yeah. I mean, something like a like a neurotoxin is going to be less effective defensively as a cytotoxin or something that's going to elicit a lot. Of exactly. Pain, yeah. Right. We we talked a few weeks ago about uh, the link up between certain venom types and pain inducing with what was it spitting spitting cobras? Yeah. yeah? So there's that whole level. But I think the other important level for this is this is all very nice. It's controlled for the environment. But if you were to go out in the field and you're gonna you've got this information in the back of your head thinking that you could predict whether an animal's gonna flee or bite or whatever, I think all of this this sort of goes out the window, doesn't it? It's nice to see the the link and the behavioral flip-flop here, but the bluster's all the same, and we don't have a good gauge of how uh, the environment around the snake will dramatically modify its behavior. You know, does it have a good route to flee? Does it have somewhere underground to go? Does You know, there's so much more playing into what leads to these behaviors other than, you know, either, either venom quantity or, or the amount they've been accosted lately. Yeah. That how much... Like, there's obviously a signal here, but how much of that signal gets completely obscured by environmental factors... That's that's quite difficult to say, but I would, if I was putting money on it, I would probably think this stuff disappears and you can't find it in the wild if the environmental stuff is uh, dramatically different. Mm. You know, you think of a snake cornered in a domestic setting where it doesn't have somewhere to escape, it's going to end up biting because that's its only recourse. Mm. In this scenario, they had that choice. And it was relatively even, presumably. Yeah. Whereas, um, if you... but even then, the bite rates might have been higher in this because they were in a captive environment that they knew they couldn't escape yeah. from. So, yeah. there are aspects of this that probably don't translate to a wild yeah. environment. As I such. think, yeah, the message remains: give the snake an out, and it will take the out. Well, I mean, yeah, I think absolutely that's the message. They do do the bluster. Mm. That was there all the time. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, um, I think that pretty nicely ties up our episode on uh, vipers and their fluorescence and also venom uh, considerations. So, yeah, 
Hopefully that's been interesting. I thought those papers were both really cool. Um, really I mean, cool. Yeah, no, I'm... Vipers I'm, are some of the best snakes really, going, really aren't they? So it's always nice. Intriguing findings. Yeah, yeah really intriguing in both yeah, of them. Yeah, it's good to see they that... Open, open a lot more doors and talk about some things that you feel like... They make a like nice lot of logical, ecological sense, but uh, it's nice seeing it borne out by the yeah, data. Yeah, totally. And yeah, you know, it just, you know, redoubles my... Uh, my certainty that we barely know anything about these animals. Um, lots and lots. There's always more Lots to and know. lots to come. <laughs> hey, so let's get on to our species of the bi week, shall we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, this one is by Lu, Hu, Huin, Huang, and Rao, 2021. 2021 a new species of goniosoma previously confused with goniosoma prasinum oh, evolutionary systematics this one is published in hey to be fair both snakes were green both snakes were green both snakes remain green um, green snakes are green snakes you know you can't always be sure especially not at a glance and we're talking about goniosoma so this is a genus of rat snakes there are six of them up till now, from South and Southeast Asia. They're non-venomous constrictors. Um, and Goniosoma prasina. Non-venomous? Pardon? Oh, well, yeah, they're probably rear fangs, like nibblers. Oh, you've put me on the spot there. Yeah. Well, I'm not... I'm, 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 I'm not sure either, but I'm just... I'm, I'm so hesitant to commit to the non-venom statement when it comes to arboreal sneaky green snake in the trees in, in Southeast Asia. Oof, yeah, I don't know. I did just do a quick Google and I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It, they might have some some uh, biologically relevant proteins there. Yeah, not sure. So, yeah, well said. Well derailed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yeah, so we're talking about Goniosoma prasina. It's a relatively large green colubrid snake. Um, yeah, they like hanging around in trees. And in 29, 2020, worth Googling, actually, Goniosoma prasina. Check it out. They're really very oh, beautiful. beautiful um, snakes. And in 29, 20, the authors were conducting fieldwork in northern Myanmar and southern China in Yunnan province. And they found some snakes resembling Goniosoma prasina in both of those places, both northern Myanmar and southern China. But they had some morphological differences. And so they did some genetic analysis. And subsequently, it was revealed that these green snakes from China and the green snakes from northern Myanmar didn't just look slightly different. They also had some genetic differences, which, as we know, Mm -hmm. means it's species time. And the trouble they had was that the original description of Goniosoma prasina was vague and not very well done. So they didn't have these like very accurate, nice morphological characters that they could compare and decide which one's which. So they yep. just had to look at the pictures and decide which one was more similar, whether the ones in Myanmar were most similar to the pictures in the species description or the ones in China were more similar to the species of description. Well, couldn't they also not get access to the type specimen in the Natural History Museum or something along yeah, those lines? Yeah, first mention of like, COVID there was a limitation in a paper. Pa- pandemic nonsense, yeah. yeah, causing... I nearly didn't... Causing issues I nearly didn't too. mention it because it's COVID. But, um, yeah, you're right. They actually specifically said in the paper, yo, we couldn't get to the Natural History Museum because of COVID, which um, is the first time I've seen COVID written forever into the annals of our academic history as it, as it pertains to snakes, which is... Um, 
a kind of, I guess, an inevitability. But yeah, here, here, oh, here it has arrived. So yeah, um, the problem was the original description, vague, vague, vague. And they didn't know which one to describe as a new species, basically. They weren't sure whether the ones in Myanmar were the new species because they weren't that similar to the original or whether the ones in China were. And so what they did, they looked at the pictures and the original description showed snakes with this greeny, yellowy coloured iris in the eye and also a non-divided precloacal plate, which is the ventral scale just next to the vent. Well, the snakes from China, Mm -hmm. in fact, have blue eyes and a divided anal plate, while those in Myanmar have the greeny-yellow eyes and an undivided anal plate, just like the snakes in the original description. So, they decided to describe the snakes from China as a new species, and they've called them Gonyosoma ceruleum, with ceruleum being the neutral gender of the Latin adjective ceruleus, meaning blue. So they've named them after the colour of the eye. Which I think is pretty... I mean, you, I do feel the snakes have done people a favor here by having a uh, a characteristic a defining characteristic which is quite easily noticeable without having them in the hand yeah pretty solid that's 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 pretty the one thing you do have to watch out for if you're looking for gonyosoma ceruleum you know obviously being named blue don't expect them to actually be blue because they are green they just have a blue eye that's, perhaps yeah, it should true. have been was... uh, ceruleops or something Ceruleon. Oh, she sounds cooler. I think I should have been in charge of the name. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, pretty sweet. Like, really beautiful, nice snake. Um, they found them all sleeping in trees at night. Easy way to catch our boreal snakes that are diurnal. If you walk around with a torch at night and shine into the trees, they look so obvious. Um, especially when they're bright green. Yeah, they green. pick up that, that artificial light. Just uh, It doesn't do them. It yeah, glow. it doesn't do their crypsis yeah. any favours. Um, no, no. So, yeah. Brand new species. Um, there's not much really about its ecology in this paper. It's more just, you know, that we've seen them sleeping in trees a bunch and uh, they're different to these other ones. So check them out. And uh, how big are they? Yeah, about ooh, 65 centimetres to 80 plus. Uh, what was the biggest one they found? Biggest one was, yeah, 833 uh, SVL. Right on, right on. And they, although that had a docked tail, there was one. They had a female that was over a meter, with the tail included. Interesting. Um, and yeah, they're these sort of, you know, they're 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 not completely just blank green. They've got some patterning. Um, some have got the white flecks. Some have got, you know, they got black interstitial skin. They're beautiful creatures, and uh, they're counter shaded as are, well, aren't they? Yeah. They're sort of yellowy, pale underneath, with a sort of more green dorsal surface. And yeah, they're tree dwellers. So Gonyosoma ceruleum. And the habitat looks spectacular. I mean, just lush, lush looking forest edges. And green. And green. And I mean, I don't know, Ben, but maybe that's why the snake's green. What do you think? Maybe. Maybe the snake's just like the color green and and that's it. Beautiful snake. Welcome to science. Um, Very, very cool. Have you got any other business? Yeah, I just, well, no, just before we end, I want to draw attention to their final paragraph. Um, that this newly described species has already been observed trading, being traded in in Yunnan. Yep, yep, yep. It's already being captured. So I mean, that's 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 not great. We don't know anything about it. It's just newly described, and you know, that's that's the sort of stuff that's scary in these places. Is that there's all this uh, biodiversity and potentially vulnerable species we don't we don't know, and. Uh, you know, market capitalism's already got its lovely little fingers in it. 
Yeah, I mean, um, it doesn't surprise me that this snake's in captivity already. Like, I mean, the thing is, no. it'll be, it'll probably be in captivity, misidentified as... Um, Potentially. What is yep. it? Gonyosoma pra- prasina. Is that what we said? Uh, Prasinum. Yeah. Good point. Well made. And they, yeah, they do explicitly say, yep. I mean, they call for it to be not traded. Um, yeah. So there it is. Uh, right. Any other business? Any other business? Um, yes, I think so. Um, it's been, I, I can't honestly remember what we talked about last episode regarding things that have occurred in the, um, uh, in, in, in our own publishing world, you chatted about your project and how it's, how it's going really nicely. Um, A long way from publication though. <laughs> Oh, that's that's yeah. fine. Publication is merely a merely a necessary career cherry to keep, <laughs> keep working. The tortoise paper is actually finally published in uh, Biotropica. So that was tracking tortoises and seeing if they chill out together. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a long story short. <laughs> Tortoises. Um, it's unfortunately it's not open access because we didn't have. What was it? So like three and a half grand to pay Biotropica to make it open access. But there is the preprint, which is open access, which has the same content as the Biotropica final uh, publication, just it's not nicely typeset and cool. stuff. Um, I did put the figures in line so you don't have to scroll to the end to see the figures. But other than that, it's not exactly the greatest looking thing. But the content's there. So. Yeah. And I go, you know. If yeah. people are interested, they can always ask you, can't they? And you'll give it to them, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is nicely all typeset and ready to go. It's, the fun thing was trying to get access to your own paper when you don't have a subscription to Biotropica. That's If anybody ever thinks that, that scientists are making money off these, off these oh, paid access, it's just, no. No, we we don't even have access to our own papers we've written sometimes. This guy eats plain so. boiled rice. I've seen him. <laughs> no, you get a bit of soy sauce. <laughs> oh, okay, mate. mate, mate I'll tell you what, talking. times are changing for you what? if you've got soy sauce on the go. That's what I like to hear. Mate. So, um, yep. right, so you this was a paper about radio tracking Testudo elongata in Thailand? Big yep. up. Yep, elongated tortoises, uh, critically endangered. Who's the lead author but, on this one? Uh, uh, that was Matt. Ah, Ward. yeah, big up Matt. Nice done. This one. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Multi-year tracking, uh, sort of ranged between daily and once every couple of days, but still managed to pull some interesting stuff out of it. Um, yeah, it's all yeah. right. Hey, well, I would, I personally, I'm, I've still got a massive infatuation with those tortoises because they're the only tortoises I've seen in the wild. And seeing a tortoise in the wild is a perennial surprise because they're just like these boulders with legs. You think, how the hell are you they're getting on? Pretty special. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. Yeah. So, um, I remember when I almost sat on one because I thought it was a <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, I would really like to visit that for an episode, really, and talk about it in context like do you want to do you want to get do you want to delve into it at all now or would you rather just wait for that and let people know it's out there ah, we, can, we can do an episode on it that's that's fine by me i can talk about tortoises to the cows yeah. come home. i'm sure there's another paper out there that would be that would be pretty neat uh alongside it i know there's some good stuff out of the at the u.s on gopher tortoises and things that are nice that might be a nice counterpoint to do with seasonality or something along those lines mm, so cool yeah well um hey congratulations to matt and you and all the rest of the squad. Um, that's great to hear. I've got a couple of other bits. Oh, oh, but oh it's not more? over. 
Because we've got another paper But wait, there's still more. Yeah. Uh, in Toxicon X, which is open access, you can go read this one all typeset and nice. Um, headed up by uh, Andrew Durso. Um, I was one of, God, I don't know how many authors, like 20. Huge number of authors. Yeah, like 20. Um, trying to get a handle on uh, how many pictures we have of snake species uh, in things like iNaturalist, Reptile Database, Hut Mapper, that sort of things. Uh, trying to get an idea of where we need more photos, where there's gaps, um, and potentially getting to some of the drivers why we have more photos of some species compared to others and things along those lines. Um, remember a while ago, had that paper about just detailing how many reptile images we had in general. Um, in some ways, it's the next sort of more complex and more thorough step from that, but focusing just on snakes. So that was fun to fun to help out with um, and sort of support. And yeah, we've got a we've got a lot of pictures of snakes, but oh boy, do we need some more because we've still got gaps. Um, what did we have? Something like nearly three quarters of a million images of of snakes across the databases. Wow. I think, like, I'm sure I've brought it up many times, massive skew towards places like the US, quite a decent number done in Australia too and places like that, but a lot of gaps in uh, Indonesia, Colombia, Mexico, India, Brazil. So basically big countries with high diversity, there's still a lot to go. But yeah, no, it, it it was cool to see to see all the all the work people have put in across the world, taking pictures of snakes and IDing them and putting them on sort of citizen science or community science. Uh, Go snake team, good stuff, man. Good Dude, stuff. Yeah, yeah, wicked. Great to hear that's come out. Hey, so um, I've got a couple of other businesses. A quick note from Scott Iper. Uh, there's a paper that he wrote along with his partner Ty. Um, about mm-hmm. um, discovery of fluorescence in Australian Skelecophidians. Skelecophidians! In the genus Enelios. Uh, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to read about some um, little blind snake typey guys who are also fluorescing under UV. Why? That's cool. Why? Why, why? Crazy. Um, because they want We don't to. know why, but we know it's going on. Oh. We missed a trick. We should have covered that <laughs> in our fluorescence episode. But yeah, definitely go check that out. It's some really cool pictures. And um, also from Scott, when you remember last episode, I was answering the question about the blue tongue skinks and pink tongue skinks and blue tongue skinks with pink tongues and what the hell's going on there. And I was talking about <laughs> talking about the interaction between skinks, their predators and skinks and other skinks. I'm basically saying that like yes. the blueness yes. could well be um, evidence that they're not necessarily displaying to each other well there's another element to this which is that the blue is a product of melanin potentially and mm-hmm. diurnal yep. skinks constantly flick out their tongue like you know similar to snakes and the idea is that having a dark color to the tongue might help protect the tissues from uv damage as is the, you know the most well-known function yeah. of uv um and well, and I think melanin's used as a protective uh, device in a lot of things. I mean, that's why the tips of seabird wings are black and stuff is to protect protect uh, feather degradation. That's why I've got really tan like arms and my body is staggeringly pasty white. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So 
there's also variation within species, with some species having darker blue tongues than others. Uh, Scott provides the example of Taliqua rugosa with darker tongues than Skinkoides. Uh, and he also says pink tongues, Cyclo, Cyclodomorphus gerardii, are nocturnal, particularly as adults. Juveniles are diurnal to crepuscular. And so they actually go through an ontogenic color shift from dark blue to pink as they transition into adulthood. Um, so as they become adults, they become nocturnal. And the tongue gets less blue. That's cool. That is very cool. That's very interesting. Man, all of these things, like there's so many layers. Um, well, this is, I mean, if there weren't, it wouldn't be fascinating. You'd find your answer, you'd be like, there we go. Job done. Close the case. Move mm. on. But no, because you, you dig a little bit deeper and there's another little dynamic going on. And of course, these things aren't even static, no. are they? So, And then we also, the final know, bit of business was from um, Damien Latouf, uh, who was the author of the nematode paper that we did, we covered in the most recent oh, episode. Yeah. He loved our coverage. Thanks, Damien. Big up yourself. And uh, <laughs> it's the scariest thing. <laughs> well, authors listen to things us talking about their papers because you always want to do them justice because you know the amount of work that goes in behind the yeah. scenes, and sometimes it's just a matter of not. Well, thankfully, you know, it's an understanding on our level yeah. that, that that misses. Everyone points, so far so. has been understanding with our efforts, so that's great. Um, but yeah, he said, "Hey, I said they were two centimeters long. These nematodes, which were looping through the gut of the tiger snakes." Let me guess, two meters? No, 12 centimeters, which is a significant oh. expansion in what I thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and he is, sent yeah. A, two meters would have been outlandish. Yeah, he sent a ghastly picture of a snake which is heavily infested with uh, nematode worms, and it made me, made awesome. me hungry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it didn't. It made me feel a bit... Yeah, so uh, I don't know about you, um, but I think that's about all we, all we have. I think that's all she wrote. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think we're All good. Right, well, I think we're good. That was a, that was a fun Viper episode. I enjoyed it was that. a fun episode. It's great to be back behind the mic. Fear not. No, we're never going to stop. It's just that I was really busy with tracking. I became a complete and utter waste of space to anyone who wasn't a snake. And Ben was moving house. So, yeah, yeah. we're back in action. You're not completely moved, are you? But you're getting there. Mate. I don't even know. <laughs> ben has officially become I wish, nomadic. I, I wish I knew my own plans. I don't even know my own plans in the next like six days. Okay, it it is it is a we grab time when we can. Yeah, and it's 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 just a mess. And I do I do apologize for that. But I mean, yeah, it's mostly my fault. I'd say it's like 80-20 split. We're doing of what we blame, can. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, then you throw in pandemic nonsense to it that makes everything more bloody complicated and. You got a real recipe for, for <laughs> delayed podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, we're still going to be doing them. They're still going to come out twice a month. So fit not. Yep. We got a bit of... As best we yeah, can. Yeah, we got a bit of catching up to do, we but we're good. Um, yeah. All right. Yep. Well, I think if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. And if you want to um, become a Patreon and, you know, all that fun stuff, it really helps support the podcast and you can pick episode topics or just, you know, generously support us, but no pressure. And uh, yeah. I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. 